Well, I will welcome you guys all again. Good morning, my friends. Um, so glad you could be here. Uh, I am Shannon. I'm the executive pastor here at Northview, and I get the privilege and the honor of concluding our But God series, the series we've been in where we've ta- been talking about God intervening in our human circumstances, uh, ranging from uh, the dysfunction of families to anxiety to failure, um, so many things. And if you haven't if you haven't heard any of those messages, I'd encourage you to go back, listen to them, and watch them on our website. Um, it has been a really, really fabulous series. So um, it's my honor to be able to, to close that out with us. Um, we usually have a testimony piece to start us out with a scripture reading. That testimony is going to come towards the end with our baptism. So uh, I will be reading the scripture passage for you this morning. Um, and we're going to read it out of Ephesians 2, if you want to follow along with me. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Would you join me once again in prayer? Father, we come before you and and lift up this time that we have together to you. Uh, We pray that uh, your spirit would be at work, that you would be moving here, that your presence would be felt. Father, that you would engage and interact with us. Help move me out of the way, the words that I have to say, the things that I think and and feel, um, so that that your will be done, that your words would be the ones impressed on our hearts. Father, I pray for conviction for those of us that that need to be challenged. I pray for um, your comfort for those of us that that are hurting, Um, and I pray that you would continue to call us towards you. Uh, We lift that up right now. Amen. All right. Start off a little bit different way. I'm going to describe for you right now something that you all probably really want to know. I'm going to give you a description of the perfect guy, all right? So right where you're at, close your eyes um, if you want, and, and let your imagination conjure up the image of the perfect guy. Here we go. Five foot ten. 125 pounds of pure pale skin, bone, and gristle. A flowing mullet. Truly, business in the front and party in the back. A lack of social skills and an inability to express things verbally without inserting foot and mouth. And a fashion sense that's the envy of small town hicks everywhere. You can open your eyes again. Did that picture in your imagination do any justice to the reality of the perfect guy? Yeah, those are 90s grad photos. <laughs> Youth group, I'm going to warn you right now, looking back at this point, that's what you're going to look like. 
mostly Cooper, but still. All right. You know, we often say God has a sense of humor, but we really do see some of his sarcasm, irony, etc., when he endows someone like this with very little to actually flaunt with one of the biggest egos and pride issues you'll ever come across. Yeah, that's right. I'm blaming God for my pride and arrogance. Shocking, given my pride and arrogance. (laughs) So this kid, uh, this guy, he's what you'd call a good kid. That kid didn't have much experience with wrong because he was pretty isolated. In his innocence and naivety, he took immense satisfaction in being right. He had high ideals. He had a relationship with God, and he knew what God desired from him. He knew what holiness looked like, especially in contrast to the people around him and how they lived. He had faith, and he trusted in God's word, God's promises, and how he perceived God's plan. We'll come back to this particular stick person and what the future had in store for him in just a little bit. But let's shift focus on the issue we're here to talk about. Let's start with a big question this morning. Why are you here? Okay, because your parents made you come to church. Maybe that's it. Uh, Maybe you heard there was an amazing guest speaker today. (laughs) Um, Maybe you just wanted to connect with other believers. Maybe you're curious about this Jesus guy. Or maybe it's even more complex than that. Maybe you want answers to why life is happening to you in the terrible way that it is. But let's take a step back one more step, even from that, um, and ask an even bigger question. Why are you here? Why do you exist? Why were you created? It's in that question, we, we presuppose God's existence, right, that he created. And maybe that's not where you're at this morning. But in my mind, how could we not come at it from that perspective? We see God's hand in everything. The Bible, his words to humanity, to me, are the best explanation of humans and human nature and the state of our world I've ever found. So again, why are you here? Why do you exist? God deliberately and willfully chose to create, knowing fully the turn that things would take from the perfection that he designed. If we accept that, we have to realize that we were created for a purpose, not just some cosmic experiment. What was that purpose? Let's look at what he says. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Isaiah 43, 7 addresses it. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Genesis 1.26 says it. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, etc. And John 17 said we were designed for relationship with him. In Isaiah, we're reminded that we're here for his glory. In other words, we were also created with the capacity and privilege to reflect his goodness his love, so that everyone would be aware of his beautiful character. And then in Genesis, from the very beginning, we were given responsibility. He gives us actionable opportunities to demonstrate the qualities that were shared with us so that people would see him through it. That was his eternal plan. Forever relationship with him, 
deep meaning and purpose in everything that we did, a role and a responsibility for his particular intentions. And think about that, 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 that picture of the reality of eternity with him like that. Not some harp-playing baby angels. Um, instead, it's an awesome existence with purpose. But people. Going back to Ephesians, that, that key verse, or that key scripture passage, verse 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trans- trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We primarily think of death as the end of things. But truthfully, death is how we start. We are the walking dead. We're separated from our real and intended life, that one that we just talked about. Why? It's God's original purpose for us. That picture we painted of eternity with him, we messed it up. He created an awesome environment for us to thrive in, but we made choices that wrecked all of it and changed eternity. Genesis 2, 8 and 9 paints this picture. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he planted the man whom he'd formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's made a beautiful creation for us. Verse 16 through 17, a little further down. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, in this creation, in this world, we've been given some crazy stuff. God made in perfection all the plants, all the animals, populated the earth, and gave man a role in caretaking that. And in the middle of this, he made this garden that's even more lush and amazing. And in the middle of that garden, he puts this tree, the tree of life. It's a tree that gives life without death. And he also put in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree that opens our eyes to moral knowledge, ethical discernment, the knowledge of good and evil. It's the perfect environment. It's everything that we need to thrive and continue on in that original plan and purpose. But that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this specific uh, instruction not to eat of it, why in the world would God plant a tree in our perfect place that would kill us? I think it's because we're given a free choice to listen to him, his way or my way. Adam and Eve had the things that that tree offered. They already had knowledge and discernment, but they had those things as they came from God. And in addition, they had been exposed to everything good. All of God's creation, as he created it, he said, this was good, this is very good. They had got to experience all of that. They just hadn't experienced the other side yet. In the choice that they had to make, and the temptation that they were 
in to defy God in that. They were essentially grasping at their own ability to control. They wanted to be independent of God and their ability to perceive and understand. And, and we're not any different. We have those same choices every day. I don't know about you, but I typically choose my own independence. That spirit of self rather than a reliance on God. Without a doubt in my mind, any of us, if we'd placed ourselves in the position of Adam and Eve, we would have brought about the same outcome, I'm sure of it. We know what happened in the garden. Chapter 3 of Genesis lays it out. Adam and Eve decided to, to eat the only thing that they were asked not to. The result was spiritual death. We call their actions sin, acting contrary to God's good purpose and intention. Their independence separated them from God's holiness, his plan, and that relationship that we talked about earlier. The result was spiritual death and eventual physical death. We all live under this, as Scripture says. The wages of sin is death, and all of us have fallen short. Romans 5, 12 through 14 addresses it. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that verse, but simply stated, even though Adam and Eve sinned by choosing independent defiance towards God, the corruption of sin infected everything, all of God's creation, all the way down to you and me. Now, let's go back for a second and visit that young man with the high ideals, you know, that perfect guy. In the middle of the knowledge of God and God's principles of living righteously, he wasn't totally content. He desired love. Now, that's not a bad thing. Adam wanted that too. But God's love didn't look like enough. He wanted something tangible to stem the loneliness and isolation that being perfect can bring. Sorry, that's sarcasm. But that that desire for tangible love isn't wrong either. Adam also wanted that, and God provided for that. In truth, this perfect guy, he wanted independence. He wanted what he wanted, even if it meant being disobedient. He minimized the consequences. He justified things that he knew were wrong. He met a girl, and against all reason, the girl pursued him. Only she didn't have any of the same ideals, beliefs, didn't even know God in any capacity. She only knew brokenness. And she was willing to show love at every every level of tangible love. That's all she'd experienced. So, in spite of my convictions, in spite of my relationship with God, I chose what I wanted rather than what he did. I gave it all up to have it my way. I exchanged intimacy with God for a superficial intimacy with her. I compromised my ideals and went all the way, justifying it and living in the pleasure that I wanted, all the while crumbling on the inside with the inescapable knowledge of what I gave up, what I lost in denying my father's plan. It made me sick. I couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. 
and I grasp even harder onto what I thought was the only thing I had left, that object of my selfish desire. Of course, we all know how those kind of stories end. I eventually ended up broken and even lonelier when that relationship died its inevitable death. And the biggest hurt, the wound that stayed for a long time, it wasn't from the girl. It was the realization that I couldn't get back what I'd given away. That I'd defied God essentially to his face for something that didn't carry anywhere near his worth or his value. My soul was in agony because of the rift in my relationship with him. I caused it, and I knew I wouldn't be the same again. I was separated from him, and I couldn't repair that damage. But God, God's intervention that saves us, that but God moment, the greatest intervention of all time is what we're talking about today. Uh, James used these two quotes, I think, early on in the series. Uh, James Boyce said, if you understand these two words, but God, they will save your soul. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. And that's not hard, and I've heard a lot of people do it, to believe that God rigged the system and is some all-powerful ogre who demands allegiance by everyone or they're shunned or cast out. In the same set of circumstances that people come to that conclusion, many people, including myself, instead perceive God's goodness and amazing love instead. Back to that, that first sin, the one we talked about in Genesis, Adam and Eve and their choice. That infected everything. And in a truly mind-blowing event, God, in that moment of their defiance, the rebellion, God foreshadows his plan to restore humanity to their original position right there in the moment of Adam and Eve's defiance and excuse-making. They've just eaten this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And their eyes, they're opened. They realize the shame that they have in their nakedness. And God closed them in the first recorded death in the Bible. And sure, that makes sense, right? They tried to make clothes out of leaves and such. I picture Zeb doing that. He may may have actually tried, I don't know. That's not gonna work super well. Animal skins, in a practical sense, are much more effective and durable, right? But do you see what actually happened there? He, God, covered their guilt and shame himself. Their ability to do so was flawed at best and were gaps existing that opened up to, let's just say, some revealing parts. They couldn't fix the situation, so he did, through death and blood in a more permanent and effective way. That describes the next 6,000 years. Humanity learned they couldn't cover the sin issue with their own corrective behaviors, and they needed a greater sacrifice provided by God to permanently deal with sin. God gave every opportunity for people to come to the realization of the need for him on their own. He gave them the law that demonstrated our inability to be righteous through deeds. 
He offered judges to illustrate where humanity was prone to getting off track. He gave people kings to rule so that we would see how messed up human sovereignty is without him. And he gave prophets to warn of the inevitable consequences of sin and coax people back to him. That sacrifice that they needed, that covering of their shame and guilt, after endless opportunities to turn on their own, was Jesus and his death on the cross. God, just like with the animal skins, God provided the covering, that covering, with the only thing that could pay the penalty, his son. John 14, 6, Jesus is speaking to Thomas, one of the disciples. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we all know John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He fully paid the penalty of spiritual death and the separation from God and his original purpose for us. That's why the gate to being saved, that restoration, is so exclusive and narrow. Because the sacrifice of Jesus, and only Jesus, is what covers that giant gap between our brokenness and independence and God. He is the bridge. Our own attempts at sin covering is sowing fig leaves at best. Pretty disastrous. And we can be upset about that exclusivity, but it isn't being demanding, it's being gracious to the utmost extreme. I love how Titus 2, verse 11 through 14 phrases it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I lived in the guilt and the shame of what I'd done for a long time. That rift in my relationship with God was something that I felt constantly. I wallowed in it, knowing I deserved punishment knowing that I wasn't good enough to even approach God to ask for grace. But God. Right where you're at, if you've never laid down the broken life you designed, where you've chosen your own will and denied God, denied his goodness, denied that you're the walking dead, that you're separated from relationship with him and his original intentions for you, if you've denied Jesus and his sacrifice, I'd ask you to give it up. Recognize the state you're in and accept the grace that he freely gives. And today is a great day for that. Back to Ephesians again, verse 4 through 7, chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show show us or show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
We have a new relationship with him. Let's flip it on his head. Verse 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that nobody may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. I love how 2 Corinthians phrases it. Verse uh, chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our position, God's original purpose and intention for us that we talked about at the very beginning, it's been restored. We are given relationship with him where it was broken. We're given purpose where we're trapped in death. We're given a role again, not just caretakers. He calls us ambassadors. We aren't just forgiven with that slate wiped clean. God sees us as worthy to be his representatives, showing his great love and mercy to those around us. 1 Corinthians 3.9 calls us God's co-workers. Holy cow. When we see our sin and our inability to fix the life we brokenly cobbled together, being given value when we have none is humbling. And it frees us up to rejoice, celebrate. You should be throwing stuff right now. Holy cow. We get to live in that. Or at least we should. That stupid kid that I was, I failed. I broke relationship with God. In the hurt of it, I knew I was forgiven. But the thing is, I had a hard time accepting it. It didn't cost me enough, I thought. How could I wound God and get off without punishment? How many of us, all of us, in spite of being reconciled and hungering for that new relationship that we're given, how many of us are trapped into the thinking that we're under deserved judgment? Can I tell you, we don't live there anymore. You're a new creation. So stop. I have to shift my thinking and acknowledge God's perspective is supreme here. He says that I'm forgiven and that that's wiped clean whether I think it or not. I need to choose his perspective. And yeah, it's another surrender thing. I had to get totally kicked in the butt to get out of my sick need for penalty. I had said that I surrendered to God way back as a kid. But I actually had to surrender and give up not just my independence and what I wanted, but I had to give up everything, including my desire for justice, my need to pay penance. Forgiveness is such a beautiful thing. 
And it is hard for us to buy into that if we haven't really given over our will to the Father. Can you do it? Please do it. Give it over. Release your will and your wants. It took me a long time, but I did it. And it made all the difference in embracing the restoration that God actually wants us to live in. Renewed relationship and purpose the way he intended. There'll be plenty of the surrender moments as we shift our habits as dead people to those that are alive in Christ. And guess what? That part, it takes a lifetime. And I do thank God that we get to walk those struggles with him, that he is present with us in those things. And I also thank God that we get to do those things together as brothers and sisters too.